Good morning. Jonah chapter 4, the strange and crazy ending. So, as we were worshiping, um, God told me to ask you if you were willing to follow the word regardless of where it goes. In other words, are you willing to be a doer, not just a hearer? And see, when God asks that kind of a question, he already knows the answer, right? And we're not telling him something he doesn't know. But it's, it's good for us to be able to voice the response when he asks us a question. So, are you willing to follow where the word goes regardless of where it might lead today? Yes. All right. just want to make sure. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, that you would indeed cause our hearts to be oriented toward you Lord, to, to, to hear the things that you want to, to bring forth into us, that by your Spirit you would, 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 would compel us to act and think and, and, and live differently as a result of what we hear. Lord, we're trusting you to work in and through your word. Amen. You know, to our normal way of thinking, the fourth chapter of Jonah is an add-on. I'm not saying it didn't happen, I'm saying to our minds, it shouldn't have happened. It seems like this crazy idea. There's a, there's a children's book about the book of Jonah, and there are none of the ideas from chapter 4 in that book. It's like the author of that children's book thought this is all too bizarre to even include in this book. You know, you've heard me say before that my wife loves happy endings. When we watch a movie and it has like a twisted or crazy ending, she'll say, Right, here's how that should have ended. And at this point in life, I actually ask her sometimes, how should that have ended? Because I like her endings better than, than what often happens. And I didn't actually ask her, but I'm pretty sure if I were to ask her that she would say that the book of Jonah should have ended at the end of chapter 3 because it just makes sense. The, the prophet finally did what God told him to do. He went to Nineveh. The people repented. Everything is hunky-dory. That's the ending. It's the way it should have been. Chapter 4, on the other hand, is like this embarrassing kind of thing that gets stuck in at the end that shouldn't be told. The, the prophet is upset that the people repented. I mean, that's crazy. He should be, that's, what he, that's the whole reason he went, right? They, he should be happy about that. But he's not. He's mad, and specifically, he's mad at God. But, you know, the, the fact is that if we've been paying attention through the rest of this book, we should have seen some kind of weird ending coming. I mean, really, everybody in this, this whole story acts differently than what we would expect them to, to act like. Here, here's, here's the prophet, and he's running away, and he's continually complaining about God, right? The, the Gentile sailors are more sensitive to God than the prophet they don't, they don't want Jonah to be thrown overboard, even if it means them you know, having, having difficulty. They even make vows to God and, and, and sacrifices to him. The, the king of this, and, and the whole population of this, this nasty, evil city, Nineveh, they repent and willingly, quickly turn to God. I mean, everybody in the story acts totally different than what we would expect. There is so much in the story that's like upside down. But there's also enough here that should cause us to do some self-examination. 
Truth be told, it's really easy for us to make fun of Jonah for being upset with God. But my guess is that most of us, if not all of us, have been there at some point. God, you're just not fair. Why did my wife or my, accident, or my, uh, my husband have that, that accident? Why didn't I get the, the business deal? Why did my baby die? I, I don't like the way you're running things here, God. I'm not suggesting that you would ever say or think anything like that. But if you have, maybe, maybe this story is more about you than it is about Jonah. So this chapter starts off by telling us that Jonah's angry and not just a little, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here in verse 2, Jonah is actually quoting from uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. If you remember the story, it's right after the the golden calf incident. And uh, uh, Moses has interceded on behalf of the people. And so God says, all right, I'm not going to destroy them. And and Moses asks God to let him him see him, to, to give him a glimpse of himself. And so God puts Moses into the cleft of the rock, passes by and talks, and in, in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The, the people of Israel knew this idea. See, unlike our culture that seems bent on trying to erase much of our history, in the Bible, God insists that they remember their history, all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly. He wants them to remember all of it. So this idea that God was, was gracious and merciful, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that was, that was really the foundation that Israel was built on. I mean, if not for those qualities, they would have been toast. They would have been history, right? That that whole golden calf thing that was not a pretty chapter in their history and but God assured them that he was forgiving that he was gracious and the people knew that and clearly Jonah knew that he said it and and it almost seems the way he's saying it that Jonah doesn't want God to be like that he doesn't want him to be gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love but but really Jonah does he wants God to be like that but he wants him to be like that toward himself and toward his people. Not, not, those, not, not those nasty Ninevites. No, no, those people should get blasted. If you remember, um, when David Kreuter started this sermon series four weeks ago, he, he shared a couple of poems from a book entitled You, Jonah, that's uh, like 50 years old. I'm going to share two poems here today from that same book, one right now and one. The, the second one, it'll be a time I'm almost done with the sermon. So when I do the second poem, you'll know that, all right, just kind of setting you up there. This one's entitled Tantrum. The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I knew what you would do, you dirty forgiver. You bless your enemies, and you show kindness to those who despitefully use you. I would rather die than live in a world with a God like you. And don't try to forgive me either. <clears throat> yeah, that, but that, that's what he's acting like here. 
Uh, one writer said this, the vengeful, wrathful, fire and brimstone figure in this story is not God, it's Jonah. The judgment of human beings is always more harsh, more capricious, more angry than the judgment of God. And I think he's right. So Jonah is clearly unhappy with what has happened. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah's upset, he wants to die and God's like, are you sure that's a good idea? And notice that there is no response here from Jonah. I remember when I was a little boy and I did something and my dad confronted me, kind of asked me a really pointed question. and I looked down and I looked over to the side, anything to avoid eye contact. And I have to wonder, is that what we're seeing here in this particular situation? Does Jonah just like turn his back and walk away? Does he act like you know, he didn't hear anything at all? No response from Jonah. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat on, under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. You know, before I started studying for this sermon series, I would have probably said that Jonah was a nice story. And I'm not saying it didn't happen. It's just, you know, really good for kids, that kind of thing. But there are so many, so many nuances, so many subtleties in this story that no kid would ever fully grasp. You guys know that I'm a reader. I've always enjoyed a, a great turn of phrase, a well-crafted idea. And this story is just full of those. You know, extremes in characters and story cause us to, to pay attention more. You know, if a story has a bunch of characters that are just kind of dull, lifeless, flat, eh, it's okay, all right? But there's extremes that, that capture our thinking. And the story of Jonah is full of extremes, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. At the beginning of the chapter, if you remember, he was exceedingly unhappy. Now he's exceedingly glad. We've seen at the beginning of the, the, the whole story that, uh, that, that Nineveh was a great city. We saw a great wind. We saw a mighty tempest. When the, the sea uh, stopped raging, the sailors feared the Lord exceedingly. It was a great fish. Later in the book of Jonah, we're told, that, we're told that, that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Everything in this story is done in extremes. Everything is bigger than life. There's no normal, mundane, everyday, everyday kind of stuff. Everything is gigantic, great, exceedingly, mighty, whatever. And even, even Jonah himself is portrayed as a character of extremes. At the beginning of the book, Jonah is introduced as the son of Amittai, uh, that word means truth or God's truth. So we know that he's a prophet and he's a son of truth, and yet he's running away from declaring the truth that God told him to, to, to declare. When Jonah was on the boat, so on the boat, he said that he feared the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You know, that, that concept of God that he made the sea and the dry land isn't stated very often in Scripture. But it's, it's interesting that Jonah would state it here when he's on a boat that God made the sea and he says, I fear that God. No, you don't, Jonah. You're running away from him. 
He's swallowed by a great fish, and in the belly of the fish, he is thanking God for rescuing him. Talk about a crazy picture. That's just wacko. Then he's vomited up on the shore, and the people of Nineveh repent, and, and Jonah gets mad. He, he's, he's, then he's exceedingly happy when the plant grows up, and then when the plant dies, he's exceedingly upset. I got to wonder if Jonah was alive today, if he'd be diagnosed as being bipolar. I don't know. He's just, it's, it's just all over the place. And then there's the, another plot twist that, unless you really look at the, the original language, you wouldn't, you wouldn't fully get what did God tell Jonah to tell the Ninevites? Very beginning of the book, go tell Nineveh and call out against it. Go to Nineveh and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay? That's what God says. What did Jonah actually say to the Ninevites? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Warren told us last week that it was an eight-word sermon. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's only five, five words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But the uh, shall be overthrown is actually one word in the Hebrew, and it's the word hapak. And it literally means to turn over. And that word, depending on the context, can be either a good turning over or a bad turning over. F for example, if you, were, you and I were to go to a, an area where there was just a tornado and we saw a car upside down, we would say that the car had been turned over. Exactly, yeah. But it would be a bad turning over. Are you with me? But if I'm cooking a steak on the grill and one side is done and I flip it, I have just hopped. I've just turned it over, but that's a good turning over. Are you with me? So it depends on the context. And, and that word is used both ways in Scripture. It can be good or bad. It depends on the context. So Jonah clearly does not want to be in Nineveh. He does not want these people to repent. You with me? And so when Jonah says that they're going to be turned over, the word many of our Bibles says overthrown, but that's just a, 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 an assumption on our part that that's what he's saying. Do we think that Jonah meant that turn over for good or for bad? Yeah, he, he doesn't want these people to, to repent. He wants, he wants them to destroy, be destroyed, right? But I am fascinated by the sovereignty of God. Even when we are being rebellious, somehow God works. And here is this rebellious prophet. What do you think God intended in that word? Yeah, he wants them to repent. He wants them to turn over. He wants, are you with me? I am fascinated by this story in so very many ways. I mean, there's no way that a, that a kid is going to grasp all the stuff that's, that's in this story. And I think that the style of storytelling here that's used makes the story even more poignant. Israel was, after all, a storytelling culture, right? And maybe that's why this story is in the Bible, not so much that, that you and I can laugh at a wayward prophet, but so we can see ourselves and maybe so we can allow God to rescue us. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. It gave him some shade for a while. Let me show you what that might look like real quick here.
So again, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plan. It gave him some shade for a while, and then it all changed again. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Stop there for just a second. I I want you to notice the continual use of God appointed. God appointed the plant. God appointed the worm. God appointed the east wind. Earlier in the the story, it, it said that God appointed the great fish. Again, don't discount the hand of God in this story. Yes, the prophet is running away, but God is running full speed after him over and over. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So, so the, the worm kills the plant. Jonah's getting overheated by the sun. And he's like, I want to die. Given the choice between living here with this God who forgives really mean people and being done with it all, Jonah chooses option B. My plant is gone. It's better for me to die. Three times in this chapter, Jonah expresses a desire to die. He is so upset with God's handling this situation, he just wants to check out. You know, I've met people like that. I've met pastors and former pastors who were so mad at God's handling of a particular situation that they just wanted to check out of all of it, just get rid of it. Maybe their brother had died at a young age. Maybe their daughter had gotten cancer. Maybe a close friend had run off with somebody else's wife. Whatever it was, that situation, God did not render justice, if you will, in the way that they thought he should. And so they just wanted to leave the game. They wanted to be done. It was over. God wasn't going to play by their rules. I'm opting out. And that's really what Jonah is doing here. And this idea of of wanting to die isn't peculiar just to Jonah among the biblical prophets. Do you remember, remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel? That is one of the most amazing stories where God worked through a person in the Bible. It is just an incredible story. And yet it was just after that that Queen Jezebel threatens Elijah and Elijah gets scared, which to me is, is even a crazy thought. But what happens in 1 Kings chapter 19, it tells us that Elijah went into the desert. Huh, kind of sounds like Jonah going out away from the city. He sits under a tree, what, like the plant? And he says, it would be better for me to die. It's almost like somebody just took this script out of Elijah and put it here in Jonah. Exactly the same. When things don't go the way that we want them to, when they don't go according to our expectations, It's really easy for us to get depressed. We want God to play by our rules. We want him to live up to our expectations. Apparently that's what Elijah and Jonah both wanted. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And and this time Jonah actually responds when God asks them the question about being angry. He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I find it interesting that those are Jonah's final words in this whole story. I mean, here's this story 
about a prophet. And the story bears his name. And his last words are, I just want to die. Doesn't that seem crazy? But Jonah's response, I mean, it's like, really, Jonah? You want to die because of a plant that just grew up overnight? Is it really that important, Jonah? I mean, from his perspective, this plant came out of nowhere. He didn't have anything to do with it. He didn't cultivate it. He didn't deserve it, certainly. And yet he's angry enough to die when it's taken away. That seems crazy. And so God asked him, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah, this, this plant came into your life yesterday. It might have shaded you from the sun for a little while, but it is not on the same level as 120,000 people and all of their livestock, Jonah. Think about this. That plant might be important to you, Jonah, but how much more important should all these people and their pets be to me, Jonah? Come on. God is trying to get Jonah to to look from a different perspective. Stop your your stupid myopic thinking, Jonah. Okay, God probably wouldn't have phrased it quite like that. I might have, but God wouldn't have. But he wants to change our perspective too. See, we generally see from our own vantage point. But, but think about it. What if, what if we were seated with Christ in the heavenlies? Oh, wait, we are. What if we look from that perspective? What if we saw people and situations from that perspective? Wouldn't that change how we think, how we interact with people? See, again, God gets the last word in the story. Jonah never responds here at the end when, he's, when God's asking, is it okay if I'm concerned about these people, Jonah? <laughs> the answer is yes. I, God says they don't know their, their right hand from their left. They don't know up from down. He's not saying they don't know right from wrong because he's on the verge of judging them. All right, So, so they know right from wrong. They, I mean, clearly they, they, they need to know that. But it's a... It's, it's actually a Hebrew idiom. They don't know their right from their left. They're, they're misguided. They're not getting it. They don't know which way to go. And so, Jonah, I'm concerned for them. See, God is a God of compassion, but not just compassion toward nice, deserving folks like you. No, he's a God of compassion toward the others. You know the ones the phone scammers, the rioters and looters, the mass murderers, the evil world dictators, that cantankerous neighbor of yours, or whoever else you want to put into that list. See, again, this story really isn't about Jonah. It's about you and me. Let me make this personal for you. Are there things in your life that bring 
shade, some sort of comfort, if you will, and you're more concerned about that thing, whatever it might be, a car, a job, a house, an ability, a reputation, whatever it might be, you're more concerned about that thing than you are the eternal destiny of your enemies. Now it's getting really quiet. See, God is asking us if we're okay that he loves people that we really don't like all that much, that he has compassion on people that we're not too crazy about. Let me try to bring this home for you. If you were to watch a television newscast tonight and the letters IRA were to appear on the screen, what is it probably talking about? Your, inter, uh, <laughs> your individual retirement account, right? No, if you have one. But, that's, that's, but if you were to see a broadcast from the 1980s, and the letters IRA were to appear on the screen, what would that have been talking about? Irish Republican Army. Army. That's for those of you that are are younger. You got it. They were zealots who were all about Ireland being independent. And the the, the news always um, cast it as a religious war because the the Irish were, uh, probably still are, predominantly Roman Catholic, and the Brits predominantly Protestant, the Church of England, the Anglican here in the, uh, the, the U.S. And in order to understand what I'm about to share with you, you also need to understand that in Great Britain, they celebrate Remembrance Day. And that's... Um, uh, go ahead, you can flip to the, the next one, Irish Republican Army. Yeah, okay. And Remembrance Day in Britain is like our Memorial Day. They remember back to those who have lost their lives in in British conquest, military conquest, all right? And it's always held the second Sunday in November. And the IRA definitely did not like Remembrance Day celebrations. They didn't want people celebrating Britain's military conquest, all right? And, and they certainly didn't want their Irish kinfolk celebrating that kind of thing. So they didn't want any kind of, of Remembrance Day celebrations. So let me take you back to November 8th, 1987. It was the second Sunday in November. And there was a Remembrance Day celebration that was going to happen in Enniskillen, Ireland, Northern Ireland. And unbeknownst to the people that were going to be there, the IRA had planted bombs in buildings around the town square because the IRA certainly didn't want those people celebrating Remembrance Day. And the bombs were placed in such a way that they would cause the most possible destruction. So when the bombs went off, buildings collapsed, parts of buildings collapsed. Injured many people, killed several. A man named Gordon Wilson with his daughter Mari was there. Gordon Wilson was a Christian. He and his daughter were both Christians. Mari was a nurse. Gordon worked in Enniskillen and because of that they were there for the Remembrance Day celebration. When the bombs went off, both of them were buried under the rubble as the buildings collapsed. Let me share with you. It was just a a day or two afterwards that that, um, Gordon Wilson actually did an interview where he shared many of these same things that you're about to hear in a video. But this this video is years later where he said almost exactly the same thing. But I wanted you to hear it from him. And then I was aware of somebody squeezing my hand. And Mary said, is that you, Dad? And I said, yes. She said, are you all right? I said, yes. Can we stop? My hand's sore. Yeah. Can we go back to the beginning? Sorry. 
He's okay. That's fine. I was aware of somebody squeezing my hand. And Mary said, "Is that you, Dad?" And I said, "Yes." She said, "Are you all right?" I said, "Yes, but my hand's sore." How are you, dear? All right. Then I heard her scream. Asked her again, "How are you, Mary? Are you all right?" Yes. She was gripping my hand very tightly. I was bleeding from the forehead. Knew it hurt myself. But I was assured that she was all right. She told me twice. She told me again, but she still was screaming in between times, and I couldn't understand why. On the one hand, she was telling me she was all right, on the other hand, she was screaming. When I asked her for the fourth or fifth time, she said, "Daddy, I love you very much." Those were the last words she spoke. I said, "Never forget them." In the interview, just a day or two after that bombing, he said, "I've lost my daughter, and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I shall pray for those people tonight and every night. May God forgive them." A year later, Gordon Wilson publicly invited members of the IRA to meet with him, and also invited the press to be on hand. And there, he publicly forgave those who had killed his daughter. And later, when the Irish gained their independence, Gordon Wilson became a senator. It was sometime even later that a woman named Mary McAleese became president of the Irish Republic. In an interview one day, she was recounting some of the events of that day, talking about Gordon Wilson, and she said he, talking about Gordon Wilson, was so practiced in the discipline of love that when his beautiful daughter Mari died hard and cruelly, her hand in his as she slipped away, the words of love and forgiveness sprang as naturally to his lips as a child's eyes are drawn to its mother. In another interview, she said this: "As I look back on Northern Ireland, as I look back on the absolutely appalling things that have happened, every atrocity produced a litany of condemnation and righteous condemnation. But the voice that said, "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do." The voice of the gospel was a very muted, a very, very muted voice, and it always struck me as very strange when Gordon Wilson spoke those words. It was almost as if they were being spoken for the very first time, because they seemed to almost stop the moment. I'm sure people know that Gordon Wilson, God rest him, had no easy ride after he uttered those words. There were many who were offended by. What he said, and who sent him hate mail, and who told him he had no business forgiving, and how dare he forgive? Literally, it was as if he were saying those words for the very first time. It was so out of the ordinary, so far removed from what people expected that there was a, a shock value in him saying that he forgave them. His daughter had just died. And it died as a result of hateful and vengeful people. From a worldly perspective, the only possible response was more hateful, vengeful retaliation. You brutal, abhorrent thugs murdered my daughter. Now I'm going to spend the rest of my days personally hunting you down and killing you. That's what we would expect. It's the way the things work in the world. And in some ways, it's even biblical, an eye for an eye, right? But Jesus came to teach a better way. He taught a new way, a way of love, of love for your enemies, 
That's crazy talk. Love the person who just murdered my daughter? I really like what Mary McAleese said. Gordon Wilson was so practiced in the discipline of love that when his beautiful daughter Marie died hard and cruelly, the words of love and of forgiveness sprang as naturally to his lips as a child's eyes are drawn to its mother. What a statement. Do those words spring immediately to our hearts and minds and lips when we encounter that kind of a thing? Jesus said clearly, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. What a picture Jesus paints there. Loving your enemies doesn't mean you have to agree with your enemies. It doesn't even mean you have to condone what they do. Jesus didn't agree with our sin. He was repulsed by it. But he came intentionally to die to forgive our sin. Think about his parable of the Good Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans were mortal enemies. John 4, 9 says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They weren't fit to associate with. Good Jews stayed as far away from Samaritans as they could possibly get. In our day, you could picture an Israeli and a Palestinian and after the last few days, honestly, I still don't think that's too strong of a statement. Let me read you something from the Archaeological Study Bible. The Jewish high priest and ruler, John Harkanus, destroyed the Samaritan sanctuary on Mount Gerizim in 128 B.C. Okay, so clearly the, 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 um, the Samaritans were not happy with the, the Jews in that case. And tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans remained high throughout the first century A.D. Samaritans scattered bones in the Jewish temple during Passover A.D. 6 or 7. So here is the, the highest, most holy time in the temple where lots of people are coming. They have just made it unclean by scattering bones through it. And this is the, this is the setting. This is just, you know, Jesus is a, is a little boy at this point. But it's in that same time frame that Jesus is telling this story about the Good Samaritan. There's clearly an adversary relationship, and yet Jesus used that, that Jew-Samaritan thing as a platform to talk about loving others. Wow. Maybe, maybe your enemy is your boss at work. Maybe it's your next-door neighbor. Maybe it's the kid you grew up with. Maybe it's the LGBTQ person that lives down the road. Maybe it's the person who's politically opposed to you. Maybe it's the person who assaulted you. Whatever. The possibilities there are nearly endless. And yet God says we're supposed to love our enemies. Here's the deal. The, the book of Jonah leaves us hanging there at the end. God asked a question. You know, we have, to, we have to wonder, how did Jonah respond to that question? But again, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that the book of Jonah is not so much about Jonah as it is you and me, and God's asking us that question. I want to love those that you don't really like. You okay with that? 
And more so, I want you to love them. See, God sent you and me to be a sign to the Ninevites around us. What sort of sign are we supposed to be? It's the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection, sign of people who are dead and are now alive. We can love and forgive others because God loved and forgave us. You and I have been made alive in Christ Jesus. We serve a God who can bring life out of death, who can resurrect those who've been swallowed up by whatever tragedy has, life has brought their way. They've been swallowed up by sin. They've been swallowed up by shame. Maybe they're swallowed up in depression. There is still hope in Jesus. Maybe, maybe you and I should be praying that God would change our hearts and show us how he would have us love our enemies. I promised you another poem from the book, You, Jonah. This one's entitled Coming Around. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonahs in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. In John Barkanik's last session with us, in his seminar, he asked the question, what would it look like for a church to sacrificially love its enemies? And then he added, that just might get the world to stand up and take notice. I think John's right. How many times have we heard that we should love our enemies? But how many times have we not done it? Father, today, we have heard your word and been convicted by your word. Lord, we said earlier that we desire to do the word, that we desire to be doers of the word, to not just hear, but to, to actually respond to, take it to heart, and implement it in our life. Lord, we're asking that you would cause that more and more to be a reality in us. That we don't just think that's a good idea, but we actually do it. Would you, in your mercy, empower us to love our enemies the way that you desire for us to? To walk out the truth that you have given us in your word that you want us to love, even those that we don't want to love, God, would you, moment by moment, day by day, show us what that should look like in our lives and then strengthen us to actually do it. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.